Hello, and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we bring Asia to you through conversations with the people whose lives and work are shaping the Indo-Pacific region. The way I would describe what's happening is the world order is becoming more bifurcated between two different constellations. Like there's a constellation of authoritarian countries that largely look to China, and there's a constellation of democratic countries that largely look to the US and Europe. And those aren't sort of formal, you know, fully institutionalized independent orders, but they do, you know, signify certain impulses and preferences and belief systems. We should by all means try to work with China on shared interests, and we should engage in universal institutions where China is a member and try to reform those and do all of that. But the lesson of the pandemic, I think, is that we can't count on that happening. I'm Rexon Yu, Managing Partner at The Asia Group. And I'm Shemriyan Anker for Bloomberg TV's Daybreak Asia and Daybreak Australia. For our episode today, we are really pleased to welcome Dr. Tom Wright, the Director of the Center on the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution and a Senior Fellow in the Project on International Order and Strategy. Tom is also a contributing writer for The Atlantic Magazine and last year published Aftershocks, Pandemic Politics and the End of the Old International Order, which he co-authored with the current Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, Colin Call. Before joining Brookings, Tom was the Executive Director of Studies at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs and a lecturer at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. Tom, thanks so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be here. Tom, there's a lot to talk about happening in geopolitics around the world today. I thought we would start with what's making the biggest headlines which is a little bit west of the Indo-Pacific, but obviously has relevance for it. And that's the crisis and tensions between Russia and Ukraine, which as we are here for our conversation today, only seem to be getting worse and moving us closer to the brink of a conflict of some sort. I'd love to start our conversation getting your basic core principles analysis of how you see the calculus by Russian President Putin and what you think may occur and unfold in the near term along the border between Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine. Thanks. Thanks, Rexon. And it's, I think it is an enormous crisis. I think it was unexpected if you wind the clock back six months ago. I don't think people thought we would be here today. And I think there's some puzzlement about the timing on Putin's part. But I think if you sort of zoom the lens out, it's perhaps not all that surprising because for Putin, he's always, and the Russian foreign policy establishment has always cared about Ukraine. They've cared about bringing Ukraine into their orbit. They've cared about controlling it, controlling the government, or at least having a pro-Russian government in Ukraine to some degree. And that has begun, their theory of the case that that's possible, I think has begun to weaken because of their own actions. So because of the annexation and invasion in 2014, that really turned Ukrainian public opinion and the Ukrainian political establishment more toward the West and away from Russia. And every month, every year that goes by, I think Ukraine is looking for ways to interact more with the West, to have closer ties to NATO, obviously, and the EU. 
and there isn't anything on the soft power side, I think, that Russia can do to remedy that because they do pose a threat to Ukrainian sovereignty and independence. So for Putin, I think drastic action may be what he feels is necessary in order to you know, accomplish that sort of objective. He's also got some other objectives, you know, the weakening of NATO, I think at the end of NATO enlargement and sort of a remaking of the European security order. I think what we're seeing is that he has created a force capable of achieving the first of those, you know, basically taking uh, control of Ukraine effectively by force. And that, that's what this force is built to do is between 130,000 troops. You know, it has a, a large number of forces that have been moved from the east, which is something they have never really done in recent memory. All of the indicators on the intelligence side, I think, are that this is pretty likely. And I think it is the base case. I think what people are worried about is a major military invasion within the next three or four weeks, while sort of the weather allows for it. I think we're seeing pretty big efforts to try to avert that. But I would say, just to your listeners, I think the base case here is that we do see a major, you know, a major invasion and conflict in Europe in the near term. I've heard the other side of the argument as well, that that is not necessarily the end game itself for President Putin, but it's more about the destabilization, the creating the uncertainty itself, that it's the strategy for Russia. I think he could have done that, but a lot less of a military buildup. I'm not a military analyst, but you know, obviously we talk to them now on a, on a very regular basis, and they uh, generally are, are pretty unanimous that this is a force that is postured to invade. You know, for instance, the Russians haven't placed troops opposite Donbass, where you might expect them to be if they wanted to do a more uh, limited act of aggression to sort of formally occupy the Donbass. They are positioned elsewhere for an invasion of the of the country, you know, at large. So when you look at the type of troops that have been moved, the types of assets that have been moved, all of this is to give them the option. Now he may not ultimately take that option. But he is increasingly in this position where he's going to either have to decide to go big, you know, or to stand down. And so I think we are at this sort of critical moment in the crisis. There's an Olympics piece to this, which is, you know, the Olympics end in a couple of weeks. There's a a few different factors at play. Some people believe they don't have the pretext yet. They don't necessarily have all of the forces in place, but they believe that's possible, you know, in the very short term. So I wouldn't say we're days away, but I do think we're looking at a contingency that will probably happen in February or early March if it were to happen at all. Tom, let me ask you, so I share your pessimism about the prospect for a political solution here that would sufficiently satisfy President Putin's objectives. But just to push you a little bit, can you envision a scenario where that occurs over the next several weeks? And how important in your view is the role that China plays in that potential scenario? Keeping in mind, you know, the visuals we saw just a few days ago of the two leaders standing side by side in Beijing. Adding to Rex's point, in fact, I've actually heard many people say that if an invasion does occur, it would not happen during the Olympics because President Putin would not want to upset and take the spotlight away from the Beijing Olympics. I mean, it's just on that latter point, it's it's possible, but I think it may not be determinative because logistically, 
it seems this is set up for action in a couple of weeks, which will be coincide with the end of the Olympics. And, you know, if the Olympics were the last six months, I'm, I might feel better, you know, about that. But since we're only talking about like less than two weeks, you know, I, I, I'm not sure it, it buys us, you know, anything in particular, if it were true. I think on Rexon's point, you know, I think there is a there is a strategy there to avert it. I, I don't think it's the base case that it will succeed. I think the base case is an invasion, but I think it's our best chance. And the strategy is to present Putin with two different scenarios, right? The first scenario, if he invades, is a much more assertive U.S. posture in Europe, more troops, more forward positioning of assets, um, maybe Finland and Sweden joining NATO, very, very strong economic and technological sanctions, including on key Russian individuals, as well as on Russia more generally, possibly supporting an insurgency in Ukraine. Um, So there's a whole series of things that would mean his security environment would worsen as he perceives it. Then on the other hand, there's a strong diplomatic track to say, you know, we're not going to have a Yalta agreement here by any means. Um, We're going to respect the red lines that we have on the rights of countries to decide their own futures. But if there's aspects of our relationship with Ukraine that worry you, we are prepared to talk on a reciprocal basis about guarantees uh, to ensure that those concerns are met. So, for instance, an assurance about no missiles in Ukraine for reciprocal Russian action on their end, possible mutual inspection of sites, and so on and so forth. So I think there are different, you know, there are those two scenarios, and the hope is um, that maybe he would worry enough about the repercussions of invasion, about what that would mean for him, and then be attracted by the diplomatic angle. I would say if you look at Macron's press conference with Putin yesterday, there isn't much signal of that really resonating with Putin yet. I mean, he was extremely bellicose and belligerent and aggressive. Macron said he had some concessions, but they didn't, you know, it was unclear whether they were new or particularly credible. So, you know, I think we'll see more diplomacy for sure. And there is a chance. I think it's worth going really big on this now to try to avert it. But I just think I'm pretty pessimistic. On the China piece, I thought the joint statement was fascinating, you know, concerning. Obviously, you know, I think this is a relationship that has gotten closer. I think it is as much about Xi and Putin as it's about Russia and China. I could imagine a different Russian leader having a different attitude toward China. I find it very hard to imagine that this particular Russian leader, you know, will feel like he should be closer to the West than the US to hedge against China. I think Putin has, you know, decided, has his worldview, is pretty close to Xi's. Having said all that, I do both think it's fairly compelling that China is probably not fully on board with this and that I think it's a mixed outcome for them. But I also think they won't do anything to stop it. So I see them as almost making themselves irrelevant in this case in that they're probably you know, facilitating or acquiescing in what Putin wants to do, even if they have concerns of it. I don't, maybe they feel like they're not in a position to really put pressure on him, but there's no sign at all, I think, that they are willing to do very much to try to persuade him not to do it. So I think they could do something uh, in a different universe, but they won't, I, I think. What about the U.S. and Europe? Because in your recent writing back from December, I believe in the Atlantic, you mentioned that 
if the United States and Europe do not stand up to Russia, you could see that dramatic escalation in military confrontation. So since then, how would you assess what they've done so far? You know, I think they've done very well. I think they've been remarkably coordinated. I think that there's never going to be complete alignment, but I think it's as good as we could possibly expect. I mean, if you look at yesterday's press conference between President Biden and President Schultz, Biden mentioned Nord Stream 2, Schultz didn't, but it was very clear that Schultz was on board with Nord Stream 2. He didn't mention it, presumably for legal reasons or others. and It got a lot of attention, but I thought the alignment was more significant. So I think they've done a lot, and I think it has helped. I think it's probably surprised Putin. I'm not sure it's it's enough, you know, because I think Putin, it's not that there's more that could be done. I just think ultimately this is Putin's decision. We can try to affect that, sharpen those choices he's making, but he could still decide, you know, to invade here. I don't think that's a failure in terms of, uh, you know, the alignment of the of the allies. I think it's just a geopolitical reality that he feels he could accomplish this, given that, you know, Ukraine's not in NATO and that he feels so strongly about it. I think the real test obviously will come if that happens. I just think that if we see a conflict of that scale in Europe, it is going to have a giant sucking effect, which obviously we might talk about the implications for Asia policy, which are concerning, but, you know, will have, it will be a big event. And I think it will sort of drag countries in in different sort of indirect ways. That's a great segue, Tom, maybe to pivot a little bit. And I'll kind of come to the book you wrote with Colin about, you know, your reflections based on extensive interviews on global world order over the unfolding of the pandemic. And what I was struck by in reading through your book has been the extent to which you have emphasized that great power rivalry, you know, US-China great power rivalry sort of infused and impacted the response to the pandemic. It shaped policies and decisions, certainly by the United States and China and others around the world. And you have observations kind of forward-looking about the prospect for and the implications of this kind of rivalry as we look at, you know, future shocks here. And while you know Russia and Ukraine is not necessarily a future shock, I want to sort of take your t- analysis that you've presented based on the pandemic and kind of bring it up to you know the world we are in a year or so after your book has come out, as we look at what has happened with China, the behavior by President Xi and his government, and we look beyond, for example, the Party Congress to a leader in Beijing who has solidified power for the foreseeable future. And how are you thinking about the impact of great power rivalry, particularly in the context if you have sort of a major military operation in Eastern Europe? And what has perhaps changed or been reinforced in your thinking? Yeah, um, no, it's a great question. I mean, I think that overall, you know, people often ask about the pandemic, especially at the beginning, what does it tell us about where we're headed in the future? And I, I think Colin and I thought that, you know, well, that's a very important question. Another question that's even more important is what does it tell us about the world we're living in right now? You know, because it's sort of stripped away a lot of the illusion. You know, people always mention a pandemic as sort of exhibit A about where the US and China should cooperate. You know, that that's an obvious one where there should be cooperation. And there was actually, even with the Trump administration, quite a lot of networked engagement between the embassy in Beijing, which we try to document in the book, 
you know, and their Chinese counterparts in Beijing on the health side. But when the crisis hit, all of that sort of melted away, right? And the rivalry, I think, really on both sides, but particularly in, in China, I think really got in the way of, you know, any substantive cooperation. And there basically was essentially no cooperation. And, and even now, I think it's extremely limited. And so our sort of main argument, I guess, in the book in terms of looking forward is that, you know, we should by all means try to work with China on shared interests. And we should engage in universal institutions where China is a member and try to reform those and do all of that. But the lesson of the pandemic, I think, is that we can't count on that happening. You know, so we may want it to happen, but we can't count on it happening. So we need to prepare for, you know, scenarios where we have to deal with these without them you know, where we don't have enough cooperation. That, that's not plan A. Like plan A is to try to cooperate. Uh, you know, I think this administration, you know, is doing that. But I just would caution people against sort of assuming because that's the preferred outcome, you know, that that will be easy or, or doable to accomplish. I think that has big implications for future global public health cooperation, climate, even sort of economic issues like the managing the global economy and any volatility. I think the issue you mentioned on Russia, Ukraine and aggression, you know, I think that's even harder still, because it's pretty clear, I think, that if this happens, you know, there won't, you know, China, I don't think is really going to do anything to sort of undermine Putin's position. And so any hope of, I mean, Russia's already a permanent member of the UN Security Council, so there wasn't much hope there. But I think it does, it will sort of indelibly uh, mark that line on the map. Let me take the other side of what you just said. As I've thought about this, Tom, the piece that has seemed uncertain to me is whether the outcomes of a major military incursion, which, you know, as you said, is, you know, is the baseline scenario here, and the response by the United States and Western countries in terms of punitive measures and sanctions, financial and otherwise, may actually be an accelerant in the rivalry and the adversarial nature of the U.S.-China relationship as questions are provoked around China seeking to enable Russia to manage and survive through the U.S. actions. And then that it widens the theater of the consequences of Russia-Ukraine into more of a global question that encompasses the U.S.-China relationship in wholly new ways. I agree. I agree with that, actually. I mean, I think if the invasion happens, yeah, I think it brings, obviously, Russia and China closer together. But I think China will get some of the blame for this, and they'll get some of the blame for blocking, you know, responses or condemnations, you know, in other forums. It definitely, I know the whole authoritarianism, democracy frame is, is a little controversial, but it sure looks a lot like that in this scenario. <laughs> you know, you have formal, you know, joint statements of support for each other. You, you'll have a, aggressive, you know, an active aggression and either approval or tacit sort of approval from China for it. So I think it will bring forward that, you know, that more, you know, bipolar world in a way between these two different blocks. I think that's a reason I would expect why China has some concerns about this, you know, because I don't think they want to see that really crystallized. Um, but just to go back to my point, I, I also don't think they're willing to spend anything to prevent it from happening. 
You know, I don't think that they care enough that they're going to, you know, take risks to say to Putin, this isn't on. So I, I think it's going to be impossible for the U.S. not, I think, to be much more involved in Europe, you know, after this, you know, happens. Um, I think the commitment to being more involved in Asia, you know, will also still very much be there. And I think the U.S. will increase its commitment to Asia. So I just think you'll see more engagement across the board, but with all the pressures that were put on budgets and bandwidth and everything else, I think it will heighten the sense of tension and it will leave less room for diplomacy. That division that you talk about between democracies and authoritarianism, for example, as you said, Beijing may not want to see that crystallized, but we are kind of seeing that play out in the Beijing Olympics as well, right? More right, than right. half of the dignitaries coming from authoritarian regimes or what they call hybrid regimes. So in this situation where we're already seeing this unfold, what are the alternative paths for cooperation? If we continue to see these instances where these rivals should have come together like during the pandemic and we don't, how do we cooperate in this new international order? Does it happen through individual issues, whether it's climate change? Does it happen through regions like we're seeing in bilateral trade agreements, multilateral trade agreements? How can we achieve that? I think it's a great question. I think overall, just to zoom out a little bit, like the way I would describe what's happening is the world order is becoming more bifurcated between two different constellations. Like there's a constellation of authoritarian countries that largely look to China, and there's a constellation of democratic countries that largely look to the US and Europe. And those aren't sort of formal, you know, fully institutionalized independent orders, but they do, you know, signify certain impulses and preferences and belief systems. And those two constellations interact with each other quite a lot, but they are separate, you know, and there are certain parts, obviously, in East Asia, Southeast Asia, where they're even more intersected, you know, for obvious sort of geographical reasons. Remember, other parts of the world where it's a little bit less, but the big challenge each constellation has is, A, how do we organize ourselves and how close do we want to be to those like-minded countries, and B, what is the level of our engagement and the manner of our engagement with the other side? And I think each is sort of coming to grips with that. We often focus on our assessment of that, but China is definitely going through its own assessment you know, of that as well. And I think the preference of each will be to minimize you know, interaction in some ways. You know, There'll be a desire for more autonomy, recognizing that it will never be possible in a perfect sense. But I think there'll be some hedging, not even hedging, there'll be planning for more autonomy and independence, more unilateralism with your own bloc. And I think we'll see less formal cooperation. We'll we'll try, we'll make a good stab at it, but I think it's just going to be hard. I think Paris is probably a good example of it working, but we'll see if much comes out of it in terms of the climate piece. I think where we will see more diplomacy you know, I was just reading recently Martin Indyk's book about Kissinger in the Middle East in 1973. And what's interesting about that book is, you know, you have all these rival hostile powers, total distrust, but immense amounts of diplomacy, because actually diplomacy in that case is about trying to manage, you know, confrontation, come up with transactional deals that get you through to next week or next month. I think that's what the future of diplomacy will look like. You know, it will be transactional, opportunistic, deals with a view toward a larger set of goals and objectives, really without much sort of trust or or guarantees. 
and it will be less like, you know, formal, structured, deep cooperation in institutions and common interests where we see sort of a minimum amount of friction. Tom, just a fascinating analysis. And I love your analogy of two constellations because I think that captures a lot. But I want to introduce one country, and I'd just love to hear how you think about India in the context of the two constellations, obviously grown much, much closer with the United States in a number of areas, particularly in security and defense. Although we witnessed last week, India is currently a member of the Security Council, and they tried to thread a very careful needle in picking a neutral point between the United States and Russia on a couple of votes there when it came to debating the Ukraine crisis. So where does India fit into your sort of framework that you just laid out? Yeah, it's a great topic. I mean, I've thought about it a bit. I think it's a really fascinating example of how, you know, just structurally because of China's actions, they've sort of forced India to make these choices that it may have otherwise not actually made, you know, because of the military confrontation and the general sort of relationship has pushed India more toward the United States, increased its willingness to take risks and avail of opportunities. You know, that's been a pattern in China's behavior, including in Europe, that it's engaged in actions that have been counterproductive. And I think it just shows you, you know, how them being them and maybe us being us on the other side sort of just, you know, reinforces some of the larger trends um, that we're seeing. I thought the Russia... India's position on this is interesting and not wholly unexpected, you know, because they, I think, do have a stake in this, but it's not the normal, you know, stake that maybe the US and Europe have. They've obviously have a good relationship with Russia and Modi had a good relationship, has a good relationship with Putin. They have a very strong interest in Russia not being more dependent on China and the scope for diplomacy between India and Russia being squeezed out, which I think it would happen in the case of an invasion. So my hope is that. Modi would be doing what little what he can to try to tell Putin, you know, we really don't want you to do this because if you do this, then we can do less with you. We will have to go with these larger forces. You know, we won't have as much space to have that, you know, India-Russia track and, and you will be more dependent on China. I think he has more credibility saying that than Washington has saying that to Putin. Um, so I would hope he's playing that role and maybe what we saw last week was a part of that. So in a in a realpolitik sense, you know, I think that is what it is, but there may be a constructive element there if they have any influence. I think the likelihood is, though, is it won't be enough, you know, that Modi's overtures to Putin won't be able to dissuade him. But I think that is what I would be looking for there, because I think they definitely have an interest in more fluidity in the international system. Like, they don't want to see for a variety of reasons, I think the authoritarianism democracy divide, you know, be locked in. But, you know, it may happen anyway. So how well has a Biden administration done specifically in Asia now in the last couple of years? I think we've seen a lot of movement in the first year. I've been very impressed, I think, with the deepening of the quad, which obviously the Trump administration had have been doing too. But I think that continued and deepened and strengthened. AUKUS, I thought, was a great you know, example, actually, of a very forward-leading, innovative strategy that was something people weren't expecting. I think it, it makes a lot of sense 
you know, on the merits, I, I like the fact that it was taking the initiative. People were responding to it. You know, they were, it was not just a reactive policy. Um, obviously, there was the, you know, the downside in terms of, you know, the relations with France, but I think a lot was done, you know, to repair that too. And I actually think one point I made to French colleagues was that they might want to see more of the AUKUS mindset in Europe, where the U.S. is taking big plays in Europe to change the dynamics, you know, so we should work out the, the differences clearly. But that mindset, I think, is a positive, you know, of, of actually putting points in the board and doing things that are unusual and advancing cooperation. So I think there's been a lot. I think the challenges are also equally evident, right? And, and you know, building out a fully-fledged economic agenda, you know, is top of everyone's list, you know, for that. I think, you know, the fact that we've seen China make advances of their own, you know, reminds us that this is a dynamic, you know, situation. And there's clearly a deterrence piece that I know they're working hard on, um, but I think will always need to be worked on. It'll never be fully um, complete because, again, it's a dynamic situation. So I, I think it's been strong, but, you know, I think it's ongoing. Like, this is something we'll all be working on for many years. I think your last comment there, Tom, is perhaps the one that we can all know is going to absolutely be true, given the nature of the challenge at the center between the United States and China and what that presents for us. We've hit time. I feel like we could go for another 30 or 40 minutes, but we will reserve that perhaps for a future episode to pick up and check back with you, Tom. So thanks so much for joining us today. Very grateful and we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Tommy, it was really a pleasure to have you on. And thank you to our listeners. Please be sure to rate and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also access a full video of our conversation on the Asia Group's YouTube page. We'll see you next time on Tea Leaks.